The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Welcome to Dropping In from Omega Institute, a podcast that explores the many ways to awaken the best in the human spirit. I'm Callie Alpert. Dropping in today, Dan Millman. Dan is a former world champion athlete, university coach, martial arts instructor, and self-described down-to-earth spiritual teacher. After a 20-year quest, Dan's teachings took form as the Peaceful Warrior's Way. He has written 18 books, most notably his 1980 spiritual classic, Way of the Peaceful Warrior, which inspired a feature film starring Nick Nolte. Dan's latest book, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, is also his first memoir, in which he shares the true story of his journey for meaning in the modern world. Dan, thank you so much for dropping in today. It's such a pleasure to meet you. I do love that term, dropping in, Kelly, and it's nice to drop in here with you. You've spent the better part of the last four to five decades on your personal journey. Did you set out intentionally to have a spiritual quest? Oh, I can answer that so many different ways. I believe we're all on a spiritual quest, whether someone would use that phrase or not, consciously or unconsciously. We're all seeking fulfillment, happiness, sense of purpose, direction, connection. Um, And so my quest... Uh, opened up gradually. I, I was, you know, who knew that liking to jump up and down on a trampoline would end up leading to all that followed. Um, but I believe my athletic training in gymnastics uh, and that performance element was not not just a preparation for spiritual practice, but was my first spiritual practice. It taught me about the necessity to be present mm-hmm. in this moment. Um, It taught me about process and what was necessary in terms of growing. So it was became a master metaphor, so to speak. And that was the beginning. But again, it was about gymnastics, sport. Uh, And I love self-improvement. You know, I took speed reading and, and speed mathematics and memory courses and sleight of hand and martial arts and acrobatics. But I think the shift happened when I realized no matter how much I improved myself, only one person benefited. But if I could somehow help improve the lives of more people, that made my life more meaningful and that was exciting, though I had no idea how I might do that at the time. I didn't really have an idea about writing a book or books or speaking, but I think that was the beginning of a calling as a teacher because from that point on, everything I learned and I continued to seek and explore, everything I learned was something I could share in my own words, in my own way with other people, though that way hadn't developed yet. Did you know that you had um, a writer in you at that time when you were so focused on your gymnastic career, trampoline career, acrobatic career, martial arts career? Did you know that you had an inner writer? Not really. Um, I think in around the 10th grade in school, we were to write a short story every week. And mine read a lot like uh, Twilight Zone fan fiction. Uh, but it was the first time I discovered that uh, penchant for liking to create stories. Um, but there was a latency period of 10 years after that where I never even occurred to me, even a 10-page paper most people can relate was intimidating. 
So no, it really hadn't come to me yet. It, it took uh, a number of experiences. And, and well, I trained with four, as I describe in my new memoir, I just, I worked over a 20-year period intensively with four different mentors, radically different characters, master teachers um, who had different approaches to what we call spiritual practice in life. And it was only after working with the first two that I felt ready to compose some kind of book. And when I was a professor at Oberlin College in Ohio, I was teaching a course in uh, martial arts, specifically Aikido and Tai Chi. It was an introductory course, and I naturally was going to call it the way of the warrior. But I didn't that didn't quite fit because these are more internal arts, more receptive. So a light bulb went on. And I said, why don't I call it the way of the peaceful warrior? And that was the first time that term organically came into mm -hmm. my life. And it was uh, years later when I wrote the book, I said, why don't I call it that way of the peaceful warrior? And that's how it uh, took shape. When you first came up with that terminology, peaceful warrior, what did it mean to you? Because there's such a duality, at least from the outside looking in until you can maybe become more familiar with the integration of those two things. Sure. That they're not so mutually exclusive. They seem like an oxymoron. Right. I mean, how can yeah. you be peaceful and a warrior? Yeah. So what did that mean to you then as opposed to what it means to you now? Well, I was influenced also. Uh, my friend Ed, Sp Ed Spielman wrote uh, a TV series called Kung Fu with the archetypal Kwai Chang Kane, played by David Carradine. And he was a peaceful Shaolin monk, a healer, and believed in nonviolence. And yet, I guess his contract, his TV contract, <laughs> was such that uh, he had to show his warrior credentials every week, uh, reluctantly. And so he was the archetype of the peaceful warrior. But I also drew somehow, maybe not consciously, on people like Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, who people who had a peaceful heart, but also at times had to show a warrior's spirit to really stand up and tackle the challenges of the world. And since then, I've come to view everyone as a peaceful warrior in training, because we're all seeking that sense of serenity, equanimity among the chaos of the daily news. Mm -hmm. But also we recognize there are times we need to bring that warrior mm -hmm. spirit into our lives in everyday life. Mm -hmm. So that's how it developed over time. But when I wrote the book, I actually didn't have all those insights. Yeah. It just seemed like a good approach and a good title, intriguing. Um, and it only evolved over time. It's interesting how on some level, as you're talking, it sounds like um, some part of you knew before you knew. Yes, exactly. It was almost like a foreshadowing of what was to come and then you stepped into the rest of it by writing the book. That is spot on. It's very cool. Yeah. I'd like to go back to uh, what you were referencing earlier about your um, preparation and the focus of your early career um, as an athlete. Um, you've talked about how that self-focus might have been a concern for you in terms of precluding you from being more of an activist. And outside your door, as you were at University of California, Berkeley in those days, Telegraph Avenue is where the, the 1960s counterculture was born. Yes. Did you grapple with that? Well, I did. And I, I like to tell a story about the old literary mentor, Socrates, and I 
we were walking down the street in Berkeley on Telegraph Avenue, and I saw a poster about starving children, oppressed peoples, and of course the Vietnam War, which was still going on. And I said, Socrates, you know, I'm doing all this work on myself, self-analysis, self-observation, meditation, inner work, kind of navel-gazing, you know? And I said, I feel it's selfish or guilty or something because there's so many people in need out there. Shouldn't I be more active socially and join my friends protesting and so on? And he stopped and turned to me and said something, a complete non-sequitur. He said, Dan, uh, take a swing at me. And I went, what? Did you hear what I was just saying? He said, come on, I'll give you $5 if you can slap me on the cheek. So I started bobbing and weaving, and then I took a swing at him and found myself on the ground in a rather painful wrist lock. And as he let me up to my feet, he said, you notice a little leverage can be very effective? And I said, yeah, Sock, I noticed it. He said, well, do what your heart tells you. If you want to help people, do what you can. But don't neglect the work on yourself so you can develop the clarity to know how to exert the right leverage at the right place at the right time. And that's what I've been striving to do ever since. So what that story conveys for me is it's not either or, right. it's both. And mm -hmm. we need to do the inner work to prepare ourselves to be more effective in the world. And that's, uh, again, I think a, a wise teaching story because of that. Mm. It's something we talk about here at Omega a lot, which is where personal growth intersects with social change. I think what I'm hearing you say is that personal growth in and of itself is enough. Is that fair to say? Do you, do you well, feel that way or do you feel like both need to ultimately coexist with each other? Hmm. Well, there's a story about a, a young girl who was excited to have her father come home from work and she said, Daddy, can we play a game together? And he said, I'm really tired, honey, but uh, let me rest for a few minutes. She said, oh, please, let's play. And he said, I'll tell you what. And he took a page out of a magazine and tore it out. And the page had a picture of the earth on it. Mm -hmm. And he ripped it up into about 20 pieces. And he said, here's some transparent tape. When you can put this jigsaw puzzle back together again, then I'll be ready to play with you, thinking it would give him a few minutes, 20 minutes or so. But she came back less than five minutes later with the picture all put back together. And he said, how did you do that? She said, it was easy, Daddy. I noticed there was a person on the other side of the page. And when I put the person together, I put the world together. And that story is kind of a metaphor for me. That's why I remembered it over the years. Because if Earth, Gaia, let's say, is a living creature floating in space, this blue-green living being, each of us are cells on the body. So the better each cell is, the better it is for the whole body. And it could be argued that we have more control over and more responsibility, therefore, for doing what we can to become that best cell, that best self. Um, so I think personal growth does fulfill uh, the sense that we can be kinder then to people around us in our immediate environment. Uh, you know the saying, think globally, act locally. So I think just uh, being kind to people around us, being a good role model, an example. Albert Schweitzer said, in influencing other people, example is not the main thing. It's the only thing. Mm. So by doing our own work on ourselves, um, it doesn't absolve us of our actions in the world. Right. 
But many people are motivated by, by guilt uh, and that I should be doing Shoots. something. I should be doing something. But what and how effectively are they going to be doing it? But if they come from a calm place, a lot happens with minimum activity and minimum thoughts, just their actions flow into the world more. I think that a lot of people now, because the world uh, is in such a challenged place that's so pronounced these last few years, and there's so many ills to contend with, that it can be very overwhelming for people to know which way to go. Do I need to show up more for my neighbors and to make my community better? Or do I need to sit in my quiet space and meditate a little bit more so I can get myself more fortified? And I think people grapple with that a lot. Many people in relationships, or they've uh, had a relationship break up, and I've experienced that in my life, as I write about in the latest book. Um, they need to get themselves together because the better they are, the different people they attract into their life, wherever you go, there you are. So they bring more of themselves into that relationship and also a relationship with the world. Um, I have a lot to say about the daily news because there's always going to be daily news. Right. One of the classic beginning lines of any book in literature is Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And he goes on with a number of contradictory pairs of phrases. Um, and both of those we could argue were true today, mm. not just 1857, I think when the book was first published. Uh, today, well, you and I could give evidence why it's the best of times. We could also give evidence why it's the worst of times. This sense of paradox I've only come to appreciate more deeply uh, recently, and it's been reflected in one or two of my books. Uh, the paradox, peaceful warrior, having our head in the clouds, but our feet on the ground. Mm -hmm. The idea of combining the Eastern solution to happiness and the Western solution to happiness. One is more extroverted, mm -hmm. success, uh, achievement. The other is more inner directed, doing inner work on ourselves. But it, we're here to integrate all of that into a balanced whole. And so many of us who are concerned with the news, and the news is designed to point out the pain in the body of earth. Just like if our body feels good, but our knee is sore, our attention goes there. That's where we need to put our attention to help take care of that and, and improve it and heal it. In the same way, the media points out the areas of the world. So it can be, it can seem like a negative type of, uh, of experience listening to the news. Uh, but if we stop and step back for a moment and look out the window, we probably hear a bird singing and trees, leaves rippling in the wind, depending on the time of year, and maybe some traffic going by and life going on in our daily lives. And we get less overwhelmed when we come back to this moment and our own personal space and direct moment. It's important to remember both. Because mm -hmm. right today we know all the ills all over the world. And we don't have control over that, so it can be frustrating to many of us and disheartening. And many people today are frustrated and a little depressed. Uh, the the post-truth era. Um, and and uh, so I think it's important to come back to our grounded reality here and now um, 
There's a quick story about this fellow who was playing golf and he sliced the ball over a fence, an ivy covered fence, and he heard something on the other side of the fence but didn't think too much about it. When he finally finished and was putting out on the final green, he saw police people and, and firefighters and they, they came up to him and said, are you the fellow who sliced a ball over the fence in the 17th fairway? He said, oh yeah, I did. And they said, do you know what happened? He said, no. Um, they said, well, it went through the windshield of a car and it crashed. Nobody was injured, but the car was totaled and blocked the road. The fire trucks couldn't get to a fire. A house burned down. Again, nobody hurt, but still. They said, what are you going to do about it? And he thought for a minute and said, I think I'll have to move my grip a little to the left <laughs> because that's all he could do. Mm -hmm. That was in his control. Mm -hmm. And I think today we need to know that what's in our control we're responsible for. What is not in our control we can't be responsible for. So we can only interact with people in our immediate environment. And remember that. A man came to me once after reading Way of the Peaceful Warrior and said, Dan, now I'm really interested in spiritual practice, but I'm married. I have a wife and three children and a full-time job. Mm -hmm. How can I find the time? And he came to understand that his wife, his children, his full-time job demand more and develop more than sitting in a cave and meditating. Mm -hmm. I usually add, I know this is true because I've done both. Mm -hmm. um, his family, his job were his primary spiritual practices. So the type of approach to spirituality that I teach is integrated seamlessly in everyday life. Daily life is a form of spiritual weight training. You don't lift any weights, you don't get any stronger. Mm -hmm. And daily life will teach us all we need to learn to evolve. People were evolving before books and seminars. <laughs> but, you know, people sometimes ask me, well, wait a minute, Dan, why do you write books then and teach seminars? Because any input that I can offer, any teacher can offer, might help people to learn the lessons of daily life more gracefully, less painfully. And as it turns out, and this is more radical, perhaps, because you see, I think many people interested in personal growth, spiritual growth, deep down, what they're yearning for is to feel bad less of the time and to feel good more of the time. And so people who promise good feeling are very popular. Um, and as it turns out, the arising emotions are like weather patterns of the body. They just arise and pass through us. And we don't have any more control over what emotions arise moment to moment than we do over the passing weather. And the same thing with our thoughts. We don't have spam filters in our heads. We can't hold on to a thought indefinitely or not have a thought happen. I often joke with people and say, I have a perfect, a master technique for being obsessed. Just try not to think about something mm -hmm. all day. Mm -hmm. So the fact is, we don't really have a lot of control. Thoughts happen to us. We don't say, I think I'll think this thought next. They just appear in our field of awareness, the random discursive mind. Obviously, we can use our mind and our intellect to remember grocery lists and write poetry and so on. But I'm talking about the random thoughts that appear. Sometimes they're positive. Sometimes we'd call them negative. We actually don't have a lot of control right. over that. And so when we recognize that, we spend less time uh, concerned with trying to fix our emotions, fix our thoughts, and fix our insides, ironically. And we focus on what we have more control over, which was what we actually do, 
how we behave moment to moment. If I were to intend to touch my nose, I could do that. I intend it, and my arm starts moving. So how we move our arms and legs and behave moment to moment um, really is a key to simplifying our life. And now a word about Omega Teacher Studio. Get ready to be inspired from your very own cushion, yoga mat, or couch. Omega Teacher Studio brings your favorite teachers direct to you, live and online, from their studios for one-plus-hour classes on topics that matter the most. They're easy to fit into your schedule and affordable, too. Learn more at eomega.org studio. To receive a 10% discount on any teacher studio tuition, enter the code DI10 when registering. That's the letters DNI and the numbers 1 and 0. Now back to our episode. There are innumerable life lessons that you have come up with and shared with your students and readers and um, over the many years, but I just chose a few to talk about. Um, and the first one, aptly, is um, that most troubles are self-created. So can you speak to that and why we humans do such a good job of creating our own troubles? Well, there's that famous uh, Mark Twain quote, I've had many troubles in my life, most of which never happened. Mm -hmm. Because most of our troubles are either what we call the past or what we call the future. But the past is past by definition. It's no longer with us, except we keep it alive as a set of neural impulses we call memory. And someone might say, no, I know the past is real, Dan. I have a picture of my last birthday at my birthday party. But all that's happening is they're showing me a visual image right in this moment of what they call the past. Same with the future. It's our imagination. And it's been said many ways by many teachers. Mm -hmm. But when we start to realize that it's not about learning some technique of focusing on the present, our body can only be in the present. It's the mind, the attention that flits back and forth. And most of our troubles, again, are not in this moment. If I were to take a set of key car keys or a ball and, and throw it to somebody and say, catch, when they're reaching for that ball, they have a cat-like awareness back to the present moment, or they drop the ball. And so as they reach for it, they're not thinking about what they did earlier today or what they're going to do tomorrow. They're in this moment. And in this moment, there may indeed be a problem. Maybe a house is on fire and they have to escape and do something. But most of our troubles, again, are not in this present moment. Most of the time, we can handle what's in front of us. So that's why it's a very important practice to remember more and more the illusory nature yeah. of the past and future. Future never comes. It's always the future. There's no such thing as future happiness. And then another one of your life lessons, if we could call them those, is the idea of the value of the empty mind. But how does one empty their mind and what does it feel like to have an empty mind, assuming that you know? My mind's pretty empty. I don't know how to respond. No, actually, <laughs> um, I think it's a, a, a sort of illusion in a way uh, that we have to quiet our mind and empty the mind and achieve a sense of void. Now, people have experiences in meditation where 20 or 30 minutes or longer go by in a flash and they go, where was my mind? It was empty. That experience of the void 
in the spiritual traditions uh, it's referred to as. But I don't think that's a proper goal because I think whenever we're absorbed in anything, now for me it was athletics. When, when I was uh, uh, doing gymnastics, uh, I wasn't thinking about much. I was just pure awareness when I was swinging around the mm. bars. That's a beginner's practice, but just sitting and having that absorption is much more challenging. So I think many people think they're failing in meditation because the thoughts are going by. But that's supposed to happen because we begin to get a distance from those thoughts, the random noise, the yada yada mind. You know. So I think the idea of how can I empty my mind, I think is a, perhaps a wild goose chase. By being absorbed in whatever we do, whether it's athletics, playing a musical instrument, throwing a frisbee, even a video game, many people love that because it absorbs them in the moment. And they're not really thinking about anything. They're just focused on what they're doing. So that's where we find what we call the quiet or empty mind by being absorbed in whatever we're doing. Now, when we can be absorbed, well, let me tell another story. I think that responds to it. Um, Socrates and I are just the two of us in the gymnasium. After I've recovered from my shattered leg, as I describe in my first book, um, and I'm swinging around the bar and I do a, some kind of full twisting double somersault and I stick my landing. As we do. Yeah, as we do. Yeah, we can all relate <laughs> to that. I stick my landing, which is a good thing. And I go, yes, you know. And uh, I figure that's a good place to stop for the evening. So I tear off my sweatshirt, throw it in my workout bag. And soon after, Socrates and I are walking down the hallway. And he turns to me and he says, Dan, you know, that last move you did was really sloppy. And I, I go, I don't understand, Sock. It was the best dismount I did in weeks. And he said, I'm not talking about the dismount from the high bar. I'm talking about the way you took off your sweatshirt and put it in your bag. Mm -hmm. And that's when he pointed out once again that I was treating one moment as special and another moment as ordinary. But then he added something. And I actually got this line into the movie version of the book just before they started shooting. Um, he said, Dan, the difference between us is you practice gymnastics. I practice everything. Mm. And that was a doorway for me. Because I, I thought about it. What do you mean practice everything? But what he meant was most of us do things. We do the laundry. We do our homework. We do our work for our career and so on. But the moment we view it as practice, we're aiming to refine or improve it. And by doing that, it pulls us deeper into the moment. Do you have a daily practice outside of the mindfulness that you just described that you live with every, every day? In terms well, of like a meditation practice or? You know, I was introduced in Melbourne, Australia as an American who's an expert in mindfulness. And I, the first thing I said to the audience was that my wife would beg to differ <laughs> because after I do the dishes, the pots, I, she always finds a spot I missed. <laughs> So I'm still practicing. Mm -hmm. um, but really, daily life is my practice now. It's not separate from daily life. Mm -hmm. I used to think I knew what spirit was, was something special, elevated, higher than. But now everywhere I look, I see spirit. Mm -hmm. So daily life is my spiritual practice. Your latest book, Peaceful Heart Warrior Spirit, is your first memoir, your first fully non-fictional, because exactly. your books have been shrouded in a little bit of mystery about where we're going with the fictional versus not, you know, versus non-fiction. Yes. 
um, over the years. Why now? What inspired you to write your memoir? Well, the memoir is actually my culminating book. I don't expect to write more books. It was a really great book in The Peaceful Warrior, 17, 16 other books, then uh, my last ah. book, where I was able to reveal the story behind the story. And there were numerous reasons for writing it. One was to uh, finally acknowledge my lineage and those master teachers who helped influence my life and work. Another was to establish my creds, because many people imagine me as this young athlete, met this old guy in a gas station, now he teaches. But there's much more than 20 years of intensive preparation and a certain breadth of experience. Um, but I wouldn't have written the book yet for those two reasons. Because we all have our stories. I believe our story is our treasure. Everyone has a story that's unique. There's not a single story on the planet exactly like yours or mine or anyone else's. But I wrote it to shed light on the spiritual quest. Most of all, because these four different teachers had radically different approaches. One was more technology-oriented inner work and a brilliant array of exercises toward enlightenment. The second was more the guru, as I call him, was more a, a surrender to the divine directly in the form of a transcendent being. Uh, and, and then the warrior priest and then the sage all had their own approaches, and all served my own evolution. Now, some people may go, oh, I wish I had those kinds of teachers, but in a way, they do. That's why I wrote the book, because they can experience some of the reasons I was attracted to them and the reasons I moved on. So do we get to talk about the spoiler alert for people that are watching and listening today that haven't yet read the book? Sure, it's in the preface of the book. My editor said, maybe we should put it at the end. I said, no, it has to be in the preface. I have to let people know. Because they say, well, wait a minute. You mentioned four mentors. Where is Socrates? Right. And so I, uh, I have to, you know, was he one of the four? Why didn't you mention him? So I have to uh, confess, in a sense, that uh, Socrates was a character based on a real old guy I met in a service station about three in the morning. But... He was a character who appeared in the book just as Daniel-san had Mr. Miyagi in The Karate Kid, or Frodo had Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, or King Arthur had Merlin in um, Camelot. So we each had our student-mentor relationship. So Socrates was uh, some, someone I created in order to convey the teachings that I thought maybe some people might enjoy. I think it's a it's a big reveal and sort of a big tickle for a lot of people that have read your books and identified with Socrates and um, now are learning that this was really you. Well, as I say, as degree, I write right? it, as I write in the preface, uh, Socrates is absolutely real. Dan Millman, however, is a fictional character. <laughs> uh, so they had Socrates all along, and I have to uh, speak with my own authority now. I mean, the time has come <laughs> at my advanced age uh, to not, I don't parrot the words of my former teachers. Uh, they open doors of insight. And in a way, I couldn't have written Peaceful Warrior without Socrates. And in fact, in the new book, I have some dialogues with him that are fanciful but fun, um, where we debrief my meetings with each of the four mentors, Sock appears. Um, 
So he became tremendously useful to me because when I wrote it, I was 34 years old. And I don't think people really wanted to hear what Dan Millman had to say. But by playing the naive student, um, I was able to draw forth a deeper part of myself. So he became my muse uh, and in a sense, a mentor to me and to my readers. So in a way, I hope it won't be too disappointing to people. Uh, I, from the start, I said Peaceful Warrior was a blend of autobiography with some fictional elements. And so it's just refreshing now with my final book, I was able to lay it all out there, the real story behind the story. Uh, and yeah, it feels good. I wouldn't change a word. I mean, some might say that you were wise beyond your years. Where's the line between you digging into wisdom that you already had and maybe didn't consciously know you had to write that and your creativity? Like, they're not really that separable, perhaps. Good point. Right? So you might have been, you might have had a lot more wisdom and knowledge and insight yes. in writing it, you know, at such a young age than you realized you did. Yes, and all my training and the training 10 years with the two, first two mentors right. opened up many doors. So I was ready to write it. it. It took shape over seven years, working and leaving it for a year and then working some more. Mm. Um, and that's just uh, the mysterious shaping of one's mm. life. I don't take direct credit. I, I don't believe in praise or blame. I think we're each doing what we, we're here to do. I did what I was hardwired to do, and no praise is necessary. Uh, yeah, I think I, I really believe that we're all just doing what we do, and so I was able to write Peaceful Warrior. Notably, I didn't write another book for 10 years because as much pressure as there was from my publisher, write another book, people are liking this. But I didn't feel I had anything new to say until I met the warrior priest, the third mentor, that I was so excited about all this new information that I started writing almost a book a year. And that's just how it unfolded in my case. But I, I do want to say we all have access. Some people call it the Akashic Record. But we all have access to wisdom once we have the free attention and we pull ourselves out of the ruminations and captured by our inner wonderings about what am I going to do about my relationship and my body and my finances. We're drawn into the, this inner uh, world, of a uh, problematic world. And of course, we have to handle what's in front of us. Mm -hmm. That's part of our training. That's what daily life is for. Uh, that's what eventually develops us. But we don't need to become obsessed with it. There are so many different quotes, many of which you have used in your teachings, about the idea that there's really one message or one light, but many lamps. Is there one bottom line from all of your learnings, teachings, travels? You know, many would say that all ancient wisdom traditions irregardless of the teacher or the modality, the roads all lead to one thing. Can you name that one thing? I think Alan Watts referred to it as the perennial philosophy. Maybe it was Joseph Campbell. I don't recall who said that. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it is true, uh, human wisdom, 
whether it's couched in the culture of India, the Vedanta, or the Taoists, or Confucius, uh, every culture has its gifts. Even the Hawaiian kahunas uh, have their depth of knowledge. And so I believe it is just our human inheritance of wisdom uh, and perspective. What is life about? It's the answer to many existential questions that we pose maybe late at night. Uh, we wake up, you know, what am I here for? What is life for? But I will share a brief story uh, because Aldous Huxley, the author of Brave New World, had his own wisdom. In fact, as much as any Westerner of his time, along with William James and a few others, he actually practiced and went to different cultures around the world and, and didn't just read about them, but he engaged the practices. And when he was in hospice care near death, his good friend Houston Smith who literally wrote the book on world religions. Houston asked him, he said, Aldous, is there any way you can summarize everything you've learned from all your travels and studies? And Professor Huxley said, I'm a little embarrassed to say, I can summarize it all in about six words. Try to be a little kinder. And maybe day to day in our, in our own lives, maybe it comes down to that. Maybe if we need to distill it and boil it down, all the spiritual terminology for inner work and sophisticated knowledge, the question is, are you kind? We're sitting here in Ram Dass library, and I remember Ram Dass used to say, oh, you think you're enlightened? Go visit your parents. And if you can be kind to them, uh, then maybe you've uh, learned something. And so perhaps... It comes down to simple things in, in this moment. So I have uh, three questions that I like to ask everybody who visits us here on Dropping In. The first one is, I'd like to grant you one wish for our viewers and our listeners. What would you wish for them? I would wish that they begin to trust the process of their life unfolding. See, I'm not here for people to trust me. I'm here to help them trust themselves. And... To do that, to stop comparing themselves with other people, which is a disrespect for our own life, our own process. When I taught gymnastics, I found that some people learned somersaults quicker than others. But those who often took longer to learn it, learned it better than those who learned it faster. So we need to trust our own way of learning, our own way of living. I think that's one important element uh, in our lives. What would you wish for yourself? My wishes are fulfilled, all of them. I mean, right now, um, this perfect moment. And finally, what would you like our viewers and listeners to take away? One thing to take away from our conversation today, if anything. Yes, I hope they take away exactly what they need because it's like a Rorschach inkblot or a cloud in the sky. We each take meaning uh, and one thing I've said or you've said will stand out for one person and another thing will stand out for another. And in fact, the same person may listen to this conversation at different times in their life and hear different things. So I have no agenda of what they should take out of it. If people would like to find out more about you, where can they 
find you? Well, thank you for asking. Um, probably the best uh, place to stop by, to drop in, would be peacefulwarrior.com. And there's quite a bit there, a free life purpose calculator and things like that. Um, I like to offer value for people. So anyway, that's the best place to drop in if they want to be in contact or join my email list, get my newsletter. This has been such a pleasure. I want to thank you so much for making the time and joining me today. You're thank very you welcome. so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for dropping in with Omega Institute. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us. If you'd like to see what we look like, watch the video version of Dropping In on Omega's YouTube channel. Dropping In is made possible in part by the support of Omega members. Omega members enjoy a host of beneficial experiences when they donate to help sustain Omega's programming. To learn more, visit eomega.org membership. And check out our many online learning opportunities featuring your favorite teachers and thought leaders at eomega.org slash online learning. I'm Callie Alpert, producer and host of Dropping In. Our video editor is Granel Knox. The music and mix are by Scott Mueller. Thanks for dropping in. Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.